And welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Hello, Gavin. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, We just recently saw each other, but I'm already back in the Fresno area. I went down for maybe the quickest trip I have uh, ever done in terms of going down for the podcast or martial arts related stuff. I've done technically uh, day trips to LA from uh, the Fresno area now, or maybe only once, but this definitely was like the quickest trip I've ever done. So we, I went down there, we got business taken care of, and then I was there for uh, exactly 14 hours. I, I was going to guess it was like 13, but yeah, yeah it, 14. It ended up being almost to the minute, 14 hours. Very and, nice. And uh, I apologize. I am drinking my protein shake today because I just finished working out. We're squeezing this in because we both have uh, busy schedules this week, but here we are. We're recording. Uh, yeah. So uh, how are you, my man? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, got caught up in some sleep yesterday. Much needed sleep. Mm. Couple of couple of late movies, a couple of people playing music very loud for a very long time. Yeah, so we unfortunately normally uh, when I go down, or I should say pretty much every time I go down, I crash at Gavin's pad. He and his uh, girlfriend are always very warm and welcoming, and uh, I crash on their couch. It's nice, pleasant sleep. You know, we got that ocean breeze coming in from Venice, and occasionally we'll maybe get a crazy homeless person making noise or whatever. But if there is anything like that, we just close the window. No big deal. We all sleep great. Uh, this trip, we encountered Afterburn. Afterburn. So, so it's a, it sounds like a cool video game. It is a the leftover floats from Burning Man uh, come to Venice and have a lot of live music. And then uh, while they have permits and they're out at the beach and you might not hear them as much, there are people who uh, ride the coattails of those permits, some uh, vendors, some restaurants in the neighborhood who let their music go until 3 a.m. trying to attract the afterburn people for some heartburn. After, yeah, for heartburn after yes. after heartburn. And yes. we're not just talking about playing music. We're talking to the point where it's like traveling through Gavin's wall, not shaking the wall, but like but vibrating through the walls. Essentially, they're going from a block and a half out trying to get the people to come from the beach so they've their volume is at i think 11 and just trying to echo it down the beach but it also echoes through the whole neighborhood but yeah as at afterburn closed last night around 10 30 p.m and uh i'm feeling well rested and and ready ready to record awesome that's that's what i like to hear yeah because uh i'm very big on my sleep i've talked about that a lot and so just the thought of gavin having to go through it another night was making me angry i was already back home i was here in my house which is i live in like the quietest neighborhood of all time which i love knock on wood uh but I was I was angry for Gavin because I just yes, can't I, stand. I appreciate I appreciate the text message. Yeah, I, I, when people are so disrespectful, for... it's just yeah. And I dealt with this in L.A. Even living in, you know, my my wonderful partner Jessica. She, you know, when we first got together, she even said, you know, I like to live in nice uh, places. So in terms of apartments, we always lived in like what are quote unquote luxury apartment complexes. But in L.A., you don't always get what you pay for in terms of uh, your neighbors and stuff. Even in these really nice 
apartments. And at the end of the day, most of the time, management does not have the cojones to do anything about when you complain about a neighbor in South. They're too timid. They don't want to upset anyone. It's like they're they're breaking the rules. You know, we have very strict your, quiet your hours. Rules. That, they're no, breaking no, your rules. No, no, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the building's rules. Yeah, like yeah. you're the ones in our lease that said we can't make any noise after 10 p.m. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I digress. Uh, just always be considerate of your neighbors. That's all I've got to say. So uh, we this is we are recording on a Monday. Yes, we people, are. So we're two days ahead of when this will start hitting people's ears. A few days mm-hmm. ahead of people hitting people visually. But how, how are you doing? How's how's your week starting off? Week starting off good. Uh, yeah, got so pretty much. Uh, I got back uh, Saturday mid afternoon. Uh, just hung out with Jessica. We ate a nice big dinner Saturday night. We got some. Uh, we uh, have our favorite ramen place here, Ramen Hayashi, but I always get rice bowls as opposed to ramen. So I got a nice big uh, chicken and chasu rice bowl. Ooh. Uh, yeah, pretty clean, actually, because I don't get it with any sauce. So it's just literally rice, edamame, chicken, and the kind of what I would call the dry style chasu. So uh, very good, yummy. And then Sunday, uh, it's finally fall. Uh, so it's nice. Last year... When we moved here to Fresno, we moved during one of the hottest summers in like forever, you know, 30 something years. And we were we moved here during high triple digits. It was like that forever. And we didn't really get much of a fall. It literally went straight from boiling hot to then one of the, like the coldest winters anybody could remember in the longest time. But it looks like right now we are in fall weather and I hope it stays. So yesterday, Jessica and I went for a nice walk, which we haven't done in probably five months at least just because mm-hmm. it's just hasn't, you know, it's pretty much if we wanted to go for a walk, we'd have to wake up at 6am before the sun's out. But yesterday, we went for a nice walk, uh, took care of some chores around the house. And then uh, we watched, uh, you know, caught up on maybe a TV show or two and watched a new movie. We watched Reptile, the the new one out on Netflix with Benicio Del Toro and Justin Timberlake. Uh, Good watch. It's a slow burn. Uh, Definitely, I'd give it a you know, uh, I'd give it overall a B probably, but it's, it's a, it's a good little mystery thriller, uh, can get a little convoluted at parts. It's kind of hard to follow. You have to, and they don't necessarily wrap everything up as much as you'd like, but some great performances, which as you know, can kind of sometimes kind of make up for a lack of a steady narrative, but yeah. So, uh, and then today I did my, uh, conditioning workout, did some sprints, did some circuit training. So feeling good, drinking my protein shake now, and then I'll go to Muay Thai in the evening. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. And you, your week's off to a good start. Week's off to a good start. Uh, I literally, even if I tried, there is nothing to complain about. Good like night's that. sleep. Yeah. Woke up. Kitchen is clean. Got to work on time ahead of time which i always Ooh. i always like it's yeah. always nice to arrive just a few minutes early to to recalibrate so yeah and you took the train this morning i did take the train and for those people that don't know la does actually have a metro system and an expanding one an expanding one it's it's here's the deal is it terrible not at all in fact it's i would say it's good the only problem is it's so limited and that's the big issue like you're like, why didn't they just build it to expand like all of LA? And it's like, that's I what know. they're thinking now, but it is California and things take forever to get done. So maybe one day it'll be as expansive uh, as like, you know, a Chinese style one or whatever, because that's what LA needs. 
And I would have totally used the Metro. I, I only ever used it in LA like two or three times. And it was easy to navigate, you know, and stuff, but it's just so limited. It just doesn't yeah, have if, that many if you're stops. Not, <laughs> if you're not along the route, then it's not worth uh, yeah. going to. But uh, right now, I'm, I'm on the route. You know, they've opened up the new downtown exits, which are a lot of fun, really beautiful. So, uh, yeah, I'm on the now, route. Now, so you take the bus from your house to get to the... Uh, I have three. I Yes, I do have three bus options. I have the Big Blue Bus run by uh, Santa Monica. I have the Culver City Green Line Bus, or I have the Orange LA City Bus. All three intersect at a different station. Uh, so it just depends on uh, which one is leaving, when it's leaving, and what view I might want to take. But the, predominantly, the, the the commute's on the on the train. All and, right. Well, yeah, train lets out right behind the Broad uh, Museum, which is right across the street from the Colburn School. Well, there you go. There you go. So... Uh, yeah, any uh, martial arts movie news? Uh, well, I hear a new documentary's out. That's right, a new, uh, well, out on the festival circuit. Yes. So uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. But in other martial arts movie news, nothing concrete there. I did see a post in one of the Facebook groups I'm in, and I had sent it to Gavin last week, about this upcoming Yip Man 5. Mm-hmm. And supposedly... It's not going to actually have Yip Man. It's going to be about like his successors and so forth. So I, I don't know. And this wasn't an official thing. This was somebody, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like translating over from a press release in, I want to say somewhere random, like Malaysia or something. I don't know. So I guess maybe that's how we are. We're not going to get the ghost of Yip Man, it looks like. Uh, but. If I'm not mistaken, his predecessors or his uh, his protégés were Bruce Lee and Dragon Lee. Pretty much, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it'll <laughs> yeah, well. Funny you should say that because yeah. in uh, oh, which one is it? Bruce Lee's Deadly Fingers or whatever is one of the ones that uh, Michael Worth actually helped release on Blu-ray. Uh, Wang Shenlong, the real life student of Yip Man, is in that playing the instructor of Bruce Lee. So uh-huh. uh, you do actually find those parallels sometimes, just like Yip Man's son. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Yip Chung or which one. He actually plays his dad in Bruce Lee, the man, the myth with Bruce Lai. So these carryovers really do happen between Bruce exploitation yes. and real life Bruce Lee slash Yip Man figures. So, so there we go. Okay, so do you have a movie quote for me today? I do have a I do have a a film and television quote for you today. Let's hear it. I, it's it it's a three parter. I'm just going to read the the main part because it's it's what we believe in. Okay. Uh, so this character, when he says they're not all the same, he's referring to martial arts. So okay. here's the quote. Okay. No, they're not all the same. Otherwise, there would there wouldn't be so many of them. Remember, it's the person that beats the attacker, not the martial art. Hmm. 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 Now you said TV show or movie, right? Yeah. Yes. Which makes me <laughs> lean towards uh, Walker Texas Ranger, but or you're Nike? not going to lean that way, right? Uh, Your gut I, says something else. I, mm, eh, I'm lost. I don't know who. Where's this one from? Well, it's a character named Tommy. From a TV show. Power Rangers? 
No, no. Oh. Acapulco Heat. Oh, <laughs> I, did you go and watch an episode of Acapulco Heat just to get I've a quote? I watched a few episodes of Acapulco oh, Heat, but then I, nice. I, did a deep, I did a deep dive of finding the most Walker-esque quote. I like it. I like it. That's good. That's good. And that's a perfect segue into the film we are talking about today. So we are talking about the fantastic brand new documentary, seven or eight years in the making, Enter the Clones of Bruce. So directed by David Gregory, released by Severn Films and produced uh, by our good friend, Michael Wirth, and our other good friend, Frank Jang. So Gavin and I were privileged enough to go to the West Coast premiere at Beyond Fest uh, this past weekend. That's why I went down there. Unfortunately, Frank Jang wasn't able to join us, but Michael Worth was there and we got to hang out with him and uh, we had a great time and the documentary was fantastic. So uh, I have been looking forward to this documentary for literally years because Michael Worth started talking about it back in 2016 when he was kind of on, I'd say, uh, not the excuse me, podcast circuit, but he was on the Kung Fu Movie Guide and I remember him talking about it on there because, and they even said in the Q&As afterwards, that's when they started filming this, was like 2016, 2017. And that's where like 90% of the footage that we saw came from. And it wasn't until like last year they were finally able to get some of the last second people they did. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Philip Coe, Mars, it was right before Philip Coe passed away, mm -hmm. may he rest in peace. And then also, most importantly, the very, very last one that I think they, so I think they initially went back to do some pickup shots and do that uh, interview with Mars and Philip Coe and maybe like a couple others. But then they finally got Bruce Lay to agree. And then they went back, I, I want to say maybe it was the beginning of this year to get that all that footage. And it was essential because he's like really one of the big three. But uh, back to... This documentary, so years in the making, really good, uh, just a love letter to the genre, eye-opening, really uh, established, as Michael said in the Q&A afterwards, like humanity to these actors, showing them as, you know, individuals, as people, not just the clones of Bruce Lee. You know, obviously, this is what they did for years, and they, you know, are appreciative, I think, even the ones that not regretted, but, you know, even were kind of like forced into it in a sense. Obviously, it was a part of their life's journey, but we really got to kind of see the other side of these people involved. And there was also a lot of great interviews with producers, writers, uh, actors, you know, some uh, foreign actors that were involved, like Roy Haran, another one they got to interview before he passed away, may he rest in peace. So yeah, it was just a great documentary. We'll get into talking about it. Uh, but as far as the trip, it was kind of, you know, they announced this a few weeks ago, so I was already planning to head down, uh, but then Frank Jang messaged me last week, asked if we wanted to get put on the, uh, the like VIP list, so, you know, we'd already have tickets, we didn't have to wait till the morning of and buy them. I said, absolutely, I'm heading down there anyway. So, on Friday, I, uh, my plan was Muay Thai in the morning, go straight from Muay Thai to hot yoga, like I have a 15 minute turnaround, finish that and then head down and get there nice and early. Well, I'm also in fight camp right now and uh, crew at the gym, crew Malapet, uh, put me through the ringer in the best kind of way, gave like a super intense workout, uh, six rounds on the pads with him, which is insane. It's like, you know, anybody that's trained in Thailand, it's like that at the, the highest level. And so, and then I did sparring after that. And then, so I was just, I went too long. I couldn't make hot yoga. So I was like, all right, so now I got to do my strength and conditioning workout today as opposed to tomorrow. So I waited here 
for a couple hours, did my strength training in my garage like I normally do, and then headed down. So I left much later, which means more traffic. But surprisingly enough, not LA traffic, Bakersfield traffic, because Bakersfield uh, on the 99, there's construction and they're doing some of that single lane stuff. So hit a little bit there. And I was actually good through LA. It was the other side going north that was all Mm -hmm. congested. But I got there right at 645. Managed to find a parking lot in Los Feliz where the screening was because, as people know, one of the main reasons I left LA is parking. And I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> and anybody it's, that hasn't lived in LA maybe doesn't get it. Uh, but if, if you've lived in any big city, you should understand. If you've ever lived in LA, you should really understand. Yeah, the, it, the par- parking has been uh, shrinking. Population's been growing. That's And what was a challenge of 10 years ago is now uh, a park-demic. Yeah, I mean, it's it is true. A real, it is a real issue. So yeah, what, when AJ told me he'd be there at 645, I tried to time it to arrive just after 645 because I'm like, if you're parking at 645, that means you're looking for parking. It's going to be an extra 15 minutes. But you got there a little before 645, so you started your parking search. Well, and the thing is, I'm one of those people, I will automatically go to the parking lot. I don't care. And some people aren't. Some people are stubborn, like, no, I'm going to find free parking on the street. No, if it's 20 bucks, I'll pay the 20 bucks and park in the lot. I don't care. I hate the stress of trying to find parking, but I couldn't find a parking lot. So I was driving around for like five or 10 minutes. Luckily, and I was about to, you know, I was at my wit's end, but I found a parking lot. It was reasonably priced, which was and plus side. So that was great. So I parked my car. I get to the restaurant we're meeting at. Uh, you arrive shortly thereafter. And one of my best friends from high school, Colin, uh, he arrived right after that. He joined us for the screening. So we hung out. We ate a great uh, dinner at, what was it? G- Fred 62. Oh, Fred 62. And I keep wanting to call it like G7 because the menu. The design. It's, the design, it's a seven. It's a seven. And it like looked like a G. I don't know. I was like, this is the weirdest thing. But great food. Uh, I got an awesome salad. It was called like the Thai salad. And it was very hearty and yummy. and. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, so yeah, we were hanging out there for quite a while because we were there early, obviously. The screening wasn't until 10 p.m. Yeah, we had a few cups of coffee, <laughs> a few too many. Yeah, so Gavin <laughs> got, uh, I obviously went the healthier route I'm on in kind of a stricter diet right now. Gavin got some chilequiles and got coffee with his dinner. I decided to get some afterwards because I was exhausted. Once again, intense day of training, as I said. The drive ended up taking four hours with that extra bit of traffic through Bakersfield. So, and I wanted to stay awake and be, totally awake during the movie. So I, I broke like one of my golden rules and I'm having diner coffee at what would be like 8 p.m. or so. And it was good too. It was that like really good diner coffee and you have your first sip and you know, ooh, this has some caffeine in it. So I drink my one cup and I was feeling good and I should have stayed there. But our waitress was very nice and she's like, you want some more? Gavin decides to have cup number three. And I'm like, you know what? Oh, uh, no, I'm good. And then she's like looking at me like, I know you want some. And I was like, all right, do like a half a cup. She no, just kept pouring. She, she wouldn't stop either when I told she just, her She to just stop. poured slow. Yeah. And you, then she, AJ said stop. And, and she just says, okay. But it, it's like it, w- it went from here to here. Oh, she filled the whole thing. it was just a thing. slow pour until it just went the whole way up. Yeah. And so that was the mistake because the two cups, uh, I mean, I stayed 100% awake during the documentary. No. Uh, head yep. nodding. I was I, awake, that's true. but nothing. No, no it, nods. It was that point of no return where now suddenly I have to pee every like ten minutes because of uh, the coffee going straight through you. And yeah, so and it and that did not the extra coffee did not help help with the the sounds of the afterburn later mm. because maybe if only at one cup 
I don't know, you probably still wouldn't have been able to sleep through it, but it would have been easier to go back to sleep in between the the DJ yeah, we, sets. We were pretty hyped up. Uh, so yeah, then uh, we you know we get to the screening nice and early. We didn't really have to wait in line because we had our VIP tickets, which was nice. Uh, Michael Worth arrived, so we got to chat with him for a little bit before the screening. We get there. Uh, cool little theater, and th- it Very was nice. Bit- it's the Los Feliz three. It has yeah. three three uh, three screens. Yeah, and it's a bit of a trip though because whereas most movie theaters are, you know, at a slant where it starts at the bottom and builds its way up, this was mm-hmm. reverse. The front row was like the highest, and the other seats descended down. Uh, yeah, it, it was- it's, and nobody blocks each. I mean, obviously the seats are far enough apart that people aren't in front of you aren't blocking but it's like the the screen i think it's because it is their smallest screen mm. the screen is higher up than say a normal movie screen so you actually do kind of want to look up and it it was a really nice experience yeah agreed so uh short little introduction and then we had some trailers for some of the other movies that were playing in the festival and Yeah, then we finally got to see the movie I've been waiting years for, and it did not disappoint. It was a love letter to the genre. It was informative. It was well edited and had some great music, a lot of great clips from not just the Bruce Bloitation films, but also some, you know, major motion pictures. So obviously they had to get the rights for that. You know, you had clips from pretty much all the Bruce Lee movies. Uh, including Enter the Dragon, Game of Death, and then you had just some fantastic interviews. Uh, were there any surprises that I'm trying to remember? Godfrey Ho was uh, uh, yeah. fin- or featured predominantly throughout it, which was great. Fantastic. Uh, he had a lot of great insight. It's so funny because so, he, he spoke yeah. in uh, like a mixture of Cantonese and English. He would like half of his sentence would be in Cantonese with the other half in English. It's like he couldn't decide which one uh, yeah. he wanted to speak in. But <laughs> it's almost like... Now I understand why his movies are edited the way they're edited. Because <laughs> he's would, going between the two back and forth. It was it like was, a Godfrey Ho movie that is a, you know, chopped together like two different movies. That's also kind of how he speaks. But, yes. you know, very intelligent, informative guy uh, with a lot of knowledge of the industry, especially. And uh, it was great. Also, Andre Morgan, who I know, I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was great that they got him to speak so much also because he gave a ton of insight uh, and he's a guy, for people that don't know, Andre Morgan was a producer at Golden Harvest starting uh, like right before Bruce Lee arrived. He was, uh, he applied there for an internship. I want to say he was going to like the University of Kansas or something in the Midwest, but he also studied Mandarin. So he spoke fluent Mandarin or whatever. And what started off as an internship turned into him working at Golden Harvest for like 30 years. And so, you know, he's, he was there during the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, all the classic era stuff, and pr- more importantly, the entire Bruce Lee run. So, you know, a lot of times there's rumors and conjecture and stuff, and you know, but he can sometimes set the record straight because he was actually there on the ground, you know, with Bruce, with Raymond Chow as the movies were being produced, you know, and uh, it's interesting. It's interesting how, you know, he talked about with Game of Death they never really intended to release the footage, but it was more so kind of a reaction to the, the Bruce Bloitation genre in a sense, like, you know, we, they're doing all this. So I guess now we've got to do what with our stuff kind of right. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, the other surprise was of course 
you know, seeing the impact of Bruce Lee in Japan and then seeing the impact of Bruce Lee in America that we would anticipate that this impact is global. Mm-hmm. But to have such a deep dive interview, interviews take place in France and also Germany yeah was very uh was an angle i did not expect france to an extent i did but for some reason i just germany caught me way out of left field well the reason why germany didn't for me is because here's the deal it's like i knew kung fu movies were big in europe but Mm -hmm. and i guess this was eye-opening to how big bruce bloitation was in europe which I, i shouldn't have been surprised about uh and i knew to some extent especially when you look at the later career of Bruce Lee with all those films produced in Europe, which is actually like his best stuff. Somebody else was talking about this recently. Maybe it's somebody at cityonfire.com, I'm not sure, but how the early Bruce Lee stuff is kind of, you know, a lot of people look at it as garbage, right? And I too am not a big fan. But some of the stuff he did in the 80s, like some of his later films, uh, and I'm trying to think of the one, we actually saw clips of it with Wong Jing Lee and stuff. It's They're big international pictures, like shot yeah. like really well in Europe. And some of them are... Definitely worth watching. But the reason Germany didn't surprise me is because, especially throughout, uh, well, even as a kid, uh, I think it was my, maybe my copy of uh, uh, Incredible Kung Fu Master with Sammo Hung, which was released as They Call Me Fat Dragon or whatever. You uh-huh. could hear sometimes uh, if you listen, because what happened was, so on VHS, on my TV, I used to have wireless headphones. Uh-huh. Uh, so, because, you know, my mom didn't want to hear our TVs or anything in our room because I had a little 13 inch VCR combo TV. So, with the headphones, I was able to hear the underlying audio that the English was dubbed over sometimes. And occasionally I'd be like, is that German? And then on top of that, when I got to China and I would buy, you know, at the DVD shops, I talk about some of the old school kung fu movies I'd find, the artwork and everything else would be in German. And they would always have the German track on there too. So it kind of just led me to believe that, oh, I guess Germany must have, you know, like a big martial arts movie following. No, you're, you're right. And it's, I, I've, I had totally forgotten that just to sidetrack a moment, we've talked about VCDs before, but the dubbing of films over video or on videotapes, you, I totally forgot that you can sometimes, if you definitely, if you put in your headphones, you can hear what they're dubbing over, which is yeah. so eerie and cool. But yeah, I mean, it's that's eerie, a- cool, but can also be irritating once you hear it. You can't unhear it because <laughs> you can, whether you can it, never unhear it, right? Whether it's German or whether it's Cantonese, and you're just like, wait, it's like somebody whispering in the back or you know talking in the back, and you're like, huh, yeah. huh, huh. But uh, yeah, so and it was great. Some of the people they interviewed, like I didn't know they they got Karatas on, and that's another I know. Uh, funny part is I had no idea that he was inadvertently part of the bruceploitation genre which he didn't even know they showed him for the first time that one of his films in the west he was released as bruce Lowe, i think is the <laughs> yeah. name they gave him and he just started it was so funny he looks at it and just starts laughing yeah and he's like i've never saw this you know he he knew he, he had worked in some bruceploitation films like he had definitely done uh like he did one called edge of fury with bruce lie and he did uh with bruce leung he did uh one at least one i know of and so he had, he was aware that he was part of the Bruce Plotation genre. He just didn't know that one of his starring roles, he was billed as Bruce Lowe. No, that seeing the, the joy on his face, like you, I don't know. It, it would, I just really appreciate how, how much 
how detailed this film was. Yes. Like every turn of the way, every every new interview, uh, it just revealed something more about the genre. And I, I, I appreciate the format of the film as well because it does open up essentially uh, with a preface. Yeah. Like like setting setting the the tone of where the world was when End of the Dragon came out. And then at, with with like some great footage from and documentary footage from Bruce Lee's life, and then they hit us with this great opening uh, title sequence, right. and then jump right into the the clones of Bruce Ag- Lee. Agreed. And I like the, the way films. they did that. It felt like uh, a standard, like almost uh, structure of a you know a non documentary, like a, a regular film where it just jumps straight into it with like people talking. You're like, whoa, that was kind of abrupt, but okay. But then you see why, because it's like a setup and it's almost like, was it like a couple of minutes, almost like five minutes. And then we get the, the title and intro. You're like, oh, it's just a really cool setup. So I thought that structurally, that was a neat way to do it. Uh, you kind of have to see it to get what we're talking about, but yeah, just technically very slick, very well done. The, the way they, jump between the interviews, like the kind of different subjects, whether it was the actual actors or historians or producers or behind the scenes, you know, Michael Wirth is featured heavily throughout it because he is one of the foremost experts on Bruceploitation. So it was great to get his insights as well. Uh, you know, they had some other uh, prevalent Hong Kong film exer- experts uh, pop up in there as well. And as you mentioned, it, we had a couple of uh, European gentlemen, I can't remember their names right now, like uh, a couple French guys and a couple German guys who, man, they were super fans as well. And it's like you really see that, wow, this this genre is not only appreciated, but studied everywhere. And so, you know, I thought like most of the experts were here, but some of like one of the, that guy in France, man, he was, uh, he had written a whole book on Bruce Bloitation. It said, said author of, and I forget. And so obviously uh, they're, the genre is spread far and wide. But the interesting part is, like they had said afterwards during the Q&A, their original cut was like four hours. And that's why I cannot wait for the Blu-ray release because I guarantee you we're going to probably see all that footage and there's just going to be hours and hours of extra interview footage. And that's what Michael was telling us afterwards. Like we're going to get to see so much more great stuff. And even, even some of the people they interviewed you know, we only saw briefly, uh, for example, like Casanova Wong, he popped up and then never came up again, right? Just probably because with the flow, it didn't really uh, fit as well. And there's there's certain parts of Bruceploitation, they didn't even talk about, you know, like the Philippines had their whole thing. I think maybe they mentioned it once, but I guarantee you they shot stuff for that and did research for that. And, you know, uh, once again, I think they kind of mentioned maybe something about Thailand too. And I, I would just love to see like this could have easily been, and maybe you said this afterwards, like a five-part Netflix documentary series. You yeah, know, it it felt like it did feel like a, a multi-part uh, documentary series. And what I, you know, what I like about documentary series, it you you have more time to get into them, right? Yeah. But so often there's a lot of filler. This this had no filler. This was all either highly informative, highly entertaining. Um, uh, kind of catch you out out of left field. I mean, like the posters and the whole the whole issue of posters, and also the movie theaters that were screening so many of these. I don't want to call the, yeah, 
So, so many for of anybody these, watching uh, on video, once this finally makes video, this was the free little poster they were handing out for Severn Films double screening. But I also got one of the big old regular posters for asking a question afterwards. Yes. And let me tell you, buddy, this thing is awesome. It's the actual official movie poster and it's huge. It's going to take up an entire wall space. <laughs> nice. uh, but Jessica actually really, she's like, that's really cool. So I'll get it framed eventually, but please yeah, keep it, going. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's just the, the poster. So a lot of the posters w- for the European release or for the American release were, they would put down Bruce Lee's name mm-hmm. featuring Bruce Lee. And then they'd even have like paintings of Bruce Lee's like, in the Bruce Lee in the coffin, or even a real photo, like which is extremely creepy and inappropriate, of Bruce Lee in in his casket. Uh, but explaining how a lot of times they would have to change the posters because obviously that's cheating. And so the like I think in France there were a lot of people on the on the tails of these folks making these like posters that were essentially lying. But in Germany, they were able to slip them through because they're playing at super small theaters and who could catch up with them. It, it was just, yeah, it was, I, like I said, it's extreme. It was entertaining and informative all at once and no filler. It, but, but with that said, I'm looking forward to the expanded release because this was such a, an amazing piece of work that I, I want to get into the, like the the citations. This, this is like one of those books where it's like, yeah. I, let me get into the citations and see where they pulled all this stuff from. Well, when talking about the a very shady practice of the marketing with using Bruce Lee's image and oh, Bruce Lee's in it, uh, it was interesting to see Andre Morgan from Golden Harvest talking about the stuff they could stop, the stuff they couldn't stop, uh, the stuff they attempted to, the stuff they succeeded in stopping, and how is this gray middle ground most of the time that these distributors were able to sneak through the cracks through technicalities right but then there would be the occasional instance where they'd go too far and andre morgan's like and that's why we were able to stop them from doing that but then the guy in france who were talking about this film distributor guy that was and they had interviews with him from back then where it was just like his mission to not let these films get uh like their uh like big proper theatrical releases because he's like it's cheating it's not real it's not bruce and blah blah and it's it's like i can appreciate that but at the same time, yeah. So it it was very interesting to see. He he was he was your consumer advocate. Yeah, who is go. not who would no no uh, no compromising consumer advocate. But of course, these films are just flooding the market. So I mean, he his hands in the late seventies and early eighties must have been full, totally preoccupied. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it was very difficult to uh, uh, difficult. Probably seven year period for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, very stressful. You know, probably rip it out of his <laughs> yeah. hair. Oh, another one, another one. Because, like, I think in the documentary they estimated there was how many true Bruce Boytation films did they say? They said like true, a hundred percent Bruce Boytation, like starring one of the real Bruce Boytation guys. There was like eighty films they said, and then probably a couple hundred more like in the entirety of the Bruce exploitation genre, right? I believe that's what they said. Yeah. I mean, Which, yeah, I think that's that's accurate. I mean, they were just I would I'd probably estimate at least 100, you know, when you when you break up the filmography of like even just Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Dragon Lee, and if you attribute each one of their films to having some element of Bruce exploitation and you know, each one of them did like 20 to 30 films, you're looking at almost 100 right there. Then you got the other ones. So yeah, it's probably in total a couple hundred actual Bruce Boytation films 
you know, uh, I think for me, what's so what's so special and and important about this documentary is there were sort of like the the 70s are like the pre-golden era of Hong Kong's cinema, but mm-hmm. in many ways it is the most impactful era just because of the films that reached out, particularly Enter the Dragon. And you have the 80s where you you and I fully believe that. I mean, it's not that's that is the peak of action cinema ever, probably. And these films were being made and the shadows of both those eras and occasionally popping through, but it, it helped fund that period and also just helped keep people employed. Uh, I mean, that it, I don't know. It's just, uh, if you're not familiar with this subgenre, you might, or even if you are familiar, you might only think that there there's like a handful of films, like five, 10, films not these hundreds of films and also not how large of a space it took up in in that short amount of time and like the 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 documentary going to this the studios uh where shaw brothers where golden harvest were it just you see what how many movies were being just churned out during that time it's uh i guess what i'm saying is this this film is not is a love letter as you mentioned and it speaks specifically to folks like us, but it's also a great historical, I don't know, a historical recap, recollection. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an important history lesson for those who love film in general, period. Yeah. And even we even get some more historical context of stuff we may be didn't even know about. And that's why I'd love to see some of the like just the sit down entire interview for example with bruce lay because here's an example i you know you hear these rumors for years but then it's when you actually hear them speak the truth it's like okay so it is a true fact that bruce lay was born in burma now he's not burmese he is ethnic chinese but then he explains like why they had to leave burma is because in the 1960s i think he said there was a i don't know what you would call it an ethnic uh and like an ethnic cleansing. Cleansing, yeah. I, right? I didn't want to have to use that term, but that's exactly Sorry. what it was. And he was, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, uh, that's what it was. And they, they, he said that all the ethnic Chinese were kicked out of Burma. And so he said a lot fled to America or Taiwan or this, and he and his family ended up in Macau. And it's like, oh, okay, so it is true. He's from, because you kind of, sometimes you read that online, you're like, Burma, why would he be born in Burma? But yeah, it's, uh, and that's a little bit of history I didn't know about. I want to go back and read that now you know, about the history of Miramar or Burma and like what was going on back then. Uh, but you also mentioned just uh, before that, you know, talking about these films and kind of talking about how prevalent they were and how much money they made. Now, over the years, Michael Worth has talked about on his own podcast and other ones, how in certain pockets, even in America, like in the Midwest, for example, Bruce Lee, the man, the myth, outgrossing Rocky, you know, in certain areas. And it, these films were, they made a, a lot of money for how little they cost to make and distribute and so forth, right? And Bruce Lai, Po Chong Tao, talks about in the documentary where a producer from India came up to him and said, do you know how much you're worth? Take a guess. And like he, Bruce Lai threw out a number and the guy's like, no, you're worth 10 times that much. Because, and he had no idea how much his movies were making. And none of these guys became rich off the genre. 
you know, I think a few of them managed to segue into successful careers, uh, kind of within their local industries. Like I think Dragon Lee became a pretty prevalent film producer and, uh, you know, filmmaker behind the scenes, but none of these guys became rich off of the Bruceploitation genre. If anything, they were exploited and probably, you know, lost money. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's sad to think about how much uh, how much time they spent on screen, how much money they made for others. And, you know, um, what was the one quote? The guy said he took less than what was being offered to him because he felt it was his role to. That was Bruce uh, Lye and doing Bruce, Bruce Lee, Lee, The Man, The Myth. So Bruce yeah. Lye doing Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth, which is probably my favorite Bruce Boytation film. He took half of his normal salary. Yeah, only because he wanted to make sure that Wing Chun was represented and, and Bruce Lee's style was uh, represented properly on film. So he, for him, it was like a personal mission. Jeet Kune Do. Yes, I yeah, yeah was, no, but he said he, I know I know. Jeet he said Kune Do, he said his his big thing was he wanted to represent Jeet Kune Do on screen okay. and make it like a, a real representation of it. That was like his goal. He had mentioned yeah. it. he he felt bad he never actually got to truly do it the way he wanted to. Yeah, and it, but it's it's funny how how now each of them have this different area in their life where there is there there's some there's a lot of sad there's sadness conveyed in this film, and there's also like. Um, inner peace conveyed as well, mm. like where each of where Bruce Lai is now, like working yes. as a as a as a like chiropractor, pre- medical practitioner, healer. There seems to be a lot of joy in in what he does, and kind of you know you got you got a sense from that from Dragon Lee as well, who seems to be uh, a different kind of happy. Yeah, and the the thing about. That's amazing about Bruce Lai. So yeah, he's this chiropractor, bone setter, like kind of healer. He's got, a, it looks like a little, uh, you know, uh, medical office in uh, wherever he is, I forget. But, uh, and then he just teaches martial arts for free in the park. Yeah. Never charges. I'm like, I'm going to, next time I go to Taiwan, I'm going to go see him and I'm going to go course. train with him without a doubt. I'm going to get the, the, the deets and the info from uh, Michael or Frank and I'm going to go train with him. I'm going to be like, and it, it's, it looked like a lot of fun. It yeah, did. He, could, he could still, uh, he, he was still doing the collie sticks really fast and he was holding mitts for people. And mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, what a trip to just, and he, as you said, it's like, he's now found this inner peace, but it was also, you find out sometimes that, you know, the kind of the sad stuff you've heard in interviews before. Cause like Bruce Lai is one of those ones where he's been in documentaries. He pretty much did like one big interview for Toby Russell that they split a, uh, part in two movies top fighter and cinema of vengeance uh-huh. and you know you learned a lot of great stuff from that one but so that's why it was nice to see some of these other figures like dragon lee and bruce lay finally get interviewed properly but also there was little tidbits you learned about bruce lie too like one of the reasons he left the industry because i always wondered why he didn't do more just in taiwan he did one film after he retired in taiwan in 1985 I forget what it's called. It had the word pink in it. And it was kind of like a made for TV movie. I've watched it once on YouTube. No subtitles. It's in Mandarin. Uh, it's pretty good, actually, uh, for being like a TV movie. But you realize the reason he left the industry is because he had to take care of his kids. He had four yeah. kids and his wife passed away. And uh, when some of the other actors in the Hong Kong industry, some of them kind of bigger actors in a sense, like Lo Meng and some of the other guys, they were talking about working with Bruce Lai and like how he was such a nice guy. They all said he was very easygoing. Uh, and that was another surprise one was Eric Tsang 
being interviewed oh, yeah. so much throughout the documentary. You're like, holy crap, Eric Tseng, because he started off as an actor and stuntman in the 70s slash writer. Uh, and so he worked with a lot of these guys. And then he also wrote like Enter the Fat Dragon with Samo. So and he gave some great insight. But he talked he also talked about like, oh, you know, how Bruce Lye could have been way bigger had he not been forced to impersonate Bruce Lye. That's what a lot of people said were like, and then there's that one quote at the end, you probably could have been a huge superstar if not for Bruce Lee. Like had he just been Ho Chung Tao because he had the skills, he had the looks, he had everything else. But, you know, once again, that's conjecture though. We don't know if that would have been the case, yeah. but it was just and interesting to hear everyone talk about how easygoing and nice he was and like how he was just always talking about his kids, right? <laughs> Y'all, yeah, yeah. So, but it was sad to hear, oh, his wife passed, he had four kids and he had to take care of them himself. And you, you would think that someone who's been seen on the film screen as much as he had been around the world and is to this day, that he wouldn't necessarily have to go into complete retirement for 16 years or 18 years, however long it takes, you know, I don't know where his, what his children's ages were at that time Yeah, to be the primary care person you know obviously we don't obviously not everybody likes to hire care and right. obviously i think we you know we've talked about this before where our parents were involved with us and we want to be involved you know should that time come for us so we understand why someone would make that shift but to go into complete retirement you would think that there'd be more financial support for what he had done where he could have continued a little bit here and there a job like one or two a year you know, one or two films a year to continue to support because that would be generating so much income. But, but I also think he was burned out on the industry and the corruption yeah, of it and stuff. And I think maybe yeah. he just didn't want that for his kids to even be around that. And then on the contrast, you, you see Dragon Lee talking about how he was so absent from his wife and family. Yes. Uh, and Michael was telling us during the premiere at the, uh, whichever film festival was in Korea, the big one, uh, I, I can't remember which city he was in, but, and he came up and talked, he actually started crying when reminiscing about it. And yes. in the documentary, you see him get like almost teary eyed about how he was never there. And then on top of that, even when he wasn't shooting, he'd be off training. He said something about being like training up in the mountains or something or, yeah. and so he was just, and he now realizes how kind of selfish that was or how hard it was on his wife and kids, him just never being around. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's and that's something you see with Hollywood stars, too. Right. Or and or you've heard the same thing with uh, like Jackie Chan, you know, and it's you kind of have to make that decision. And I guess, you know, in Bruce Lai's mind, it's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be there with my kids, because even though maybe the film industry could have provided for them probably better in a sense, financially, it wouldn't have been the emotional support, you know, that yeah. uh, comes with you being know, there. I don't want to. I don't want to sidetrack us too much. But while we're on that topic, it always reminded me of uh, Michael Hoy when he got his. You know, from the interviews I've read, which of course come through probably heavily, heavily translated, and whether it's accurate or not, I'm not sure. But what I remember reading about him once he got into such a uh, powerful or controlling role of his career where he's writing and directing or just writing or just directing, but always performing. He essentially made the decision he was going to do one film a year only. And so it had to be a good script. And if the script was good, he would do that one film. But it's like, 
that work-life balance once the career explodes is so hard to find, particularly in the film industry, but especially in this film industry of like the exploit of basically exploitive films, exploiting, you know, uh, the name of Bruce Lee. I think that's fair to say. And then mm-hmm. also exploiting the talent who filled in in his in his place, in his stead, making people a lot of money. But just the work, you know, also knowing that there are other, I don't want to say impersonators because they weren't impersonating. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a necessarily a fair uh, name tag to put on them, but to have so many other performers in rotation. So if you turn down a role, even if it's, even if the pay is minuscule, if you're turning down a role, someone else is just going to fill in for you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that was also, it, it's interesting you say that, me going off at a tangent too. I've uh, been watching uh, Eric Jacobus' uh, series with uh, him interviewing like the class people of uh, Hong Kong cinema. And right now I'm watching the Mark Houghton interview. And it's a great interview. And Mark Houghton was talking about the same thing. If you turn down doing a stunt, then you are never going to be back working in a movie again. If you're like, no, I, I can't do that or I don't want to do that. You know, it's like, all right, well, this is your last movie. You know, it's, yeah. And, thank you very much. And, and I think that speaks also to how highly, how highly we think of Sammo Hung. It speaks to like I, I, the story that Richard Norton told when he couldn't do. I forget what film they initially recruited him for, or they reached out to him to do Wheels and, on Wheels, and he couldn't do. So he couldn't yeah. do the film, and because he had a prior commitment, I think he was doing Linda Rodstad's uh, bodyguarding James, or James Taylor and James Japan. Taylor's bodyguarding yeah. at the time. So essentially, he had to turn it down. And then about a year or so later, he got the phone call to do uh, uh, My Lucky Stars, right, or Seven uh, Twinkle 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 Lucky, twinkle, stars. lucky stars. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, you know, that that speaks to Samuel Hung and how special he truly is and especially was during that time where if you say no, goodbye. If you say, you know, he he kept people uh he kept he wasn't that uh harsh with those no's. Yeah. You know, someone said no, he just he just waited until they could say yes. Right. And especially if it's a no because y- you have other commitments and stuff, right? Like yeah. Yeah. Uh so then back to the documentary, we'll start wrapping things up. I mean, it's, and it's kind of hard to sum up a documentary, right? It's not a three-act structure. I mean, it is, but it's just th- this, once again, the, the film is fantastic. I hope everyone, if you get the chance to go see it in theaters, most likely it, it might be hard for some people, but if you get the chance, go see it. Once it comes out on Blu-ray, definitely purchase it. If you love this genre or you love martial arts cinema, or even if you're just like documentaries about film, you will love this particular uh, project. But yeah, so many great people interviewed. Uh, well, one of the funny ones I want to bring up is uh, Bruce Leung, who was one of the first ones they actually interviewed. They said back in, was it 2016 or 17? Uh-huh. And was that his own wine brand he was I trying to was, pimp I out the whole to, time? So when everyone at the end of the film screening, when they're like, if you have a question, please ask the question. Uh-huh. Here, you know, you, you'll get to this one sheet poster. So AJ had a great question. Our friend Aaron Chavez had a great question. Uh, I was going to ask, was that his own wine label? And did you get a chance to taste the wine? But I refrain because there were better questions. For context, during the entire interview, Bruce Leung, who is a well-known kung fu actor in the 70s, <laughs> starred in uh, uh, a handful of Bruce exploitation films, but most famously, uh, I always forget the name of it, uh, where, the one where Bruce Lee goes to uh, like the afterlife and you know, it's got Zatuichi, James Bond, Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. All these characters, Popeye pops up. That's actually Eric Tang playing Popeye, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So yeah uh, anywho, 
He's sitting <laughs> in this, like, what looks like a wine tasting room with all this, like, wine on the wall. He has a wine bottle right in front of him with the label turned. And I swear it's like you see his face on there or something. And he's Absolutely. got his, his glass of wine. He's got <laughs> what, I mean, maybe it's his hair. It might it, be his hair, but it looks like a wig. But well, there's, it's funny because later in the documentary, he's outside on a veranda somewhere and that wine bottle's there with him in another. Exactly. And I'm that, like, it's, it's got to be his. It's got to be his brand that he was, uh, you know, really trying to push. And it was red wine. And I'm like, all right, you know, China isn't necessarily <laughs> known for their red wine, let alone a Kung Fu star like Bruce Leung. Uh, but and for context, for people that maybe don't know who Bruce Leung is, the most famous role in more recent years was he played the villain in Kung Fu Hustle, the Toad. Uh, and so great role there. But yeah, an amazing really, martial it, artist uh, too. It's, it's, it's really gratifying to see him get a role like that yeah. later in his career outside well, that, of the shadow of the roles that he played. And that was all Stephen Chow because he grew up a fan of his. So it's just yeah. funny how, you know, certain people appreciated the work of you know with all this this huge vast library of martial arts films and stars how maybe one particular filmmaker really appreciated one particular star and then years later remembers them and brings them back i mean even quentin tarantino is famous for that obviously both within the martial arts film genre and outside of it so it's just funny the impact that people can have and i think a lot of that was also explored in the film the impact some of these guys had and didn't even realize it, right? Angela Mao, she didn't really talk about it too much in this documentary, uh, but I've seen her in other interviews where she talks about that, like she had no idea how huge she was and how people to this day still recognize her. And uh, once again, that's another one. It'd be so awesome to see just her full interview. And I, I something I want to give credit to, to director David Gregory about too, and Michael Wirth mentioned this in the Q&A afterwards and gave him credit for it, is how well structured this film is how well it explores the genre in a very complete and uh, informative ma uh, manner. And it, like, because Michael Worth made a great point, and I would have been the exact same. Had he been helming this project, he would have just been asking random trivia questions like, well, what was it like working with da da da? And even my question I asked afterwards was kind of like that, and I would have mm -hmm. been the same. You know, I, like, nobody better to help produce it line up the interviews and speak during the film than Michael Worth, but I really have to give credit to director uh, David Gregory, who uh, just really put together a fine picture and he made it so it's accessible and digestible by anybody, not just fans of the genre, not just fans of martial arts cinema, but just fans of cinema all yeah. around. I, I, I agree. It, it, he, the director really just allow the humanity to slip in because this could easily i i would have loved to nerd out on like all the trivia that yes that uh was surely that sh surely was just oozing and dripping from the trees you know just everywhere uh but just to focus on on the human aspect makes this film so enjoyable and and you know you you said this this is a fan a film for even fans of documentaries about films. I'd say it's also a, a people who are fans of documentary about Hong Kong itself. Yeah, uh, about and about just the impact of finding that work life balance. It's just it's such a I don't know it, it like I can each interview was so special. Even the German uh, 
film hall uh, gentleman, and I wish I had, had his name off the top of my head, and I, I apologize for not pre- preparing that, but every interview was just so distinct and so many characters within this world. Uh, it just, uh, it, what I got from this documentary because of its great structure is what I would want from a narrative film. It yeah. just so, so layered, so, so full. And it was though, I feel like the one thing that would have been really nice to have, and somebody even asked about this in the Q and a, and luckily we did have Andre Morgan to kind of balance it out, but as if we could have had Linda Lee in there, you know, talking about, cause it would be nice to see the perspective of, from her really, right. Yeah. Like from the family or something, how it affected them. Cause it really did affect them. Andre Morgan talked about it, being able to make money off of Bruce Yep. Because of all these people exploiting him and stuff. And so it was harder for them to do kind of a legitimate thing. And it's interesting, the impact that may have had on why they they did some of the posthumous releases of like Bruce's writing and even the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which, as we know, was never intended for him to be a book release. But maybe it was just them trying to keep control over the Bruce Lee narrative. But it is interesting. They they talked about how they did reach out. And at first, they're like, ah, but then they did you know, once the documentary was finished and picking up some traction, then it was like, oh yeah. But then they wanted to see it because it's like they wanted to give their approval. And that's when they're like, yeah, nope, that's not what this is about. This is if you want to be involved in it. And yeah, because obviously, you know, the the Bruce Lee estate, understandably so in some cases, but also, yeah, you know, they're very controlling of the the legacy of Bruce, what they would like people to know, to not know, which unfortunately when you have such a cultural icon like Bruce, that's just not really possible. And it's in recent years, a lot of people have unfortunately been a little perturbed by the Bruce Lee estate and what they've chosen to recognize and not what they've chose to highlight and not. Uh, but it would have been interesting to get Linda's perspective, mm-hmm. you know, it really uh, would have been because she was his wife and she was there and, you know, going through all this, or maybe even like his brother, Robert Lee, uh, you know, that would have been interesting. But other than that, I mean, it's such a complete, wonderful picture uh, that will not disappoint. So wrapping things up, I give this film an AA plus. Definitely everybody should go watch it. And I'm really looking forward to a Blu-ray release. Definitely keep an eye and ear out for future projects from all those involved, particularly Michael Wirth and uh, the House of Fangs project. It is not dead. It is still alive. Uh, and Hopefully, we'll be shooting next year, and when we get any sort of updates on that, we will definitely be sharing. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm looking uh, forward to it. Language Corner? Did you bring anything? Well. Well, I'll, I'll just teach us how to say uh, documentary. Uh, okay. Real easy. So, jilu uh, pian. How do you say that? Jilu pian. Jilu pian. No. So, J-I-T. G. Lu. Lu. Pian. Pian. It's uh, all the pian. pian. Yeah, exactly. So pian is the word that you put at the end of any sort of genre. Like you'll hear me say kung fu pian, like the yeah. kung fu movies. Wuxia pian, the wuxia movies. So, ji uh, lu pian. Ji lu pian. Yep. So documentary. Very nice. Yep. Yep. I figured that was uh, simple. We've definitely not done that one before. So, uh, yeah, it was a uh, great experience. Once again, super quick trip because... Oh yeah, I guess so. I guess we should, we'll we'll finish with that. So the documentary got out. It started right on time. We got out a little after eleven thirty. We hung out for probably like an hour with Michael and 
uh, his uh, mom, who is wonderful, and his girlfriend, Jennifer, who is awesome. And we hung out with them. We're just talking about projects, this and that. We get home around 1.30, and that's when we discover the music going on. So, And Gavin and I were originally supposed to just kind of sleep in, go for our Venice Beach run, get some acai bowls across the street that we love to do, and then he was going to go to work, and I was going to head home. Unfortunately, Gavin got called into work, or who was spo- the person who was supposed to cover him couldn't, so we ended up just having to get up. But because of the music going till like you know four in the morning, <laughs> we both slept about maybe three hours max. And maybe, maybe I, I heard Gavin come down the stairs at 745 and I was like, I'm awake. You want to just go get coffee and then leave? And you're like, yeah. So I just grabbed my bags. I didn't even see Emily. And I, I no, feel really, I feel really bad about that. But <laughs> uh, tell her I say hello. Uh, but yeah, we had our coffee and then we just headed out. So yeah, that's why I was there for almost to the minute, exactly 14 hours. Yeah. 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 Pretty quick trip. All right, my man. Uh, this has been fun. This will drop on Wednesday, and hopefully I'll have a bunch of videos coming out this week. It sounds good. All right. Looking forward to it. Bye. Adios.